0: California Frontier Podcast, Episode 14. The California Frontier Podcast is dedicated to helping you explore the Golden State's unique history, culture, and environment. I'm Damian Bassage, and I'm your host. So, this is the final episode of season two of the California Frontier podcast, and we have a real treat to finish up the season one of the giants of historic preservation in California. My guest today is Dr. Gerald Jackman, and Dr. Jackman is a historian, and he has a long and distinguished career as the director of the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation. And he was actually responsible for leading the rebuilding of the Presidio of Santa Barbara, which is now a state historic park. He's currently working on a new project called the Presidio Alliance, whose goal is to support accurate research and the exchange of ideas related to the history of the presidios and other Spanish settlements and sites in North America. In our conversation, we talk about the important role of the Santa Barbara Presidio why soldiers and presidios were so important on the California frontier and why their role is still so poorly understood. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation and without further ado, let's get into it. Gerald Jackman, thanks for taking the time to uh, talk with me on the California frontier podcast. I know you through our uh, belonging to the California Missions Foundation. I've I've heard many talks you've given, and I particularly know you because you have headed up the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation for many years. Uh, I know you're retired from that now, but uh, you've done a lot of interesting things, and I know you're doing, you're still doing a lot of interesting things. I'd love to have you talked a little bit about your background and, and the things that you've worked on and the, the things that you're working on?
1: Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I really admire this project that you have put together, these podcasts, and I'm following you online. I think it's really great what you're doing. Uh, I'll just start kind of at the beginning. My, my background before I started the Trust was all German, you know, German food, German this, German that. Uh, as I, you and I have discussed off air here that uh, I went to UCLA like you did, but I graduated in German literature in 66, went to Germany for a short while then came back and started graduate school and did a PhD eventually at UC Santa Barbara in history and uh, was on the subject of German exiles who came to California. But uh, after uh, UCSB, I had a fellowship to research and write my dissertation in Germany, which I did. And then my wife, who was uh, uh, working, was with me with our daughter in Germany, began working for the military, and then eventually got transferred to the Pentagon, and I went with her to Washington, D.C. after teaching in Europe for quite a while. As you can tell, so far, I haven't... uh, had any contact with things Spanish, but uh, but uh, you know, after a couple of years, it was a very hard time in the late seventies for historians in in uh, Washington D.C. It was the Carter years, and uh, so I said I want to go back to California, and my wife said, "Well, she had a really good job working in the Pentagon, and said I'll do it if we move to Santa Barbara." <laughs> so I didn't have any work or anything, and I. That's
0: began- a hard bargain.
1: Yeah, that's uh, got it. Well, so I began teaching that that circuit writer type of teaching. I we were living in Santa Barbara. I taught at Oxy, Occidental College, Mm -hmm. Cal State LA, a couple of community colleges, and then I applied for the job at the Trust for Historic Preservation with a little bit of public history background in in D.C., which I don't need to go into here. So I I got hired um, to be the first paid administrator at the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation with this funny project called Rebuilding the Santa Barbara Presidio. And uh, this project had been going on since uh, the early 60s, and uh, they had made pretty good progress. They hadn't really rebuilt anything, and the idea was to rebuild the fort. But they had some pretty creative people who went out and began purchasing the land around the Presidio. Presidio area in downtown Santa Barbara. No easy thing because the Presidio covered an area of about four blocks. It was in the middle of streets and so forth. So there are a couple of very clever, smart people who would uh, talk to owners of properties. And by the time I arrived, the project had been around from 63. The time I arrived in 81, uh, they had acquired about half the land uh, for rebuilding the Presidio, sort of quietly. Uh, you so,
0: know, just you sorry, to sorry to interrupt, but so uh, Santa Barbara is the location of one of the four uh, Presidios, the military Presidios that the Spanish built in California, to California. Right. And at that time, what was the condition of the Presidio in Santa Barbara? You're saying they were rebuilding it, so it sounds like it wasn't built.
1: Well, there wasn't much left. That's right. There were basically two rooms left. One was called El Cortel, fairly intact room on Canon Perdido Street by the downtown post office. Uh, two rooms were left of soldiers' quarters, Cortel, as you know, means quarters. And then across the street, there was a, another adobe called a Canedo adobe, Canedo adobe, which is another two rooms. So of a fort that had, Dozens of rooms, a chapel, and was completely enclosed at the size of a four-block area. That's what was left after earthquakes, streets cut through and demolished buildings, etc. There had been uh, portions of the commandant's quarters left uh, from uh, the 19th, 18th century, but that went down in the 1925 earthquake. So not much left, but let's let's compare to what else is out there. San Diego... Had zero left. They're on the hillside above Old Town San Diego. There's nothing but foundations there. In uh, Monterey, you had uh, you have one chapel. You have a church. It's a National Historic Landmark. It's now a Catholic church. It's uh, still still used for worship. And and then you have San Francisco. Uh, this Presidio, which became an American military fort, but that has about around two or three rooms that I think are from the presidio area they were doing some research on uh, archaeology to determine if those rooms were Mexican or Spanish period mm-hmm. so you see there wasn't there wasn't much left and as you know Damien these presidios were pretty important in their time really uh, it, as important as the missions but as towns grew up uh, around them or whatever they were more or less abandoned whereas the 21 missions were pretty much saved and so uh, pretty soon i came to the without much background in this period of history i came to the conclusion this was a pretty important project that uh it, it would be an opportunity for the world to learn about the presidio history uh that people heard about and always associate with the american fort that came in during the american period after uh Mexican War, California became a state. So that that was something I had enthusiasm for the project and and was happy to try to, to make it happen and spent the next 35 years trying to make it happen. And, and quite a bit has been rebuilt uh, since that time in 1981.
0: Well, if you go to the Presidio today, it's pretty impressive um, what's been done there. I mean, you make it sound a little bit... Um I guess you're you're being humble, but but when I go there and have taken my family there, et cetera it's it's very impressive what you guys have done there,
1: yeah, and there's more to do. I mean there's mm-hmm. uh as you would guess, the project became somewhat controversial because it's right in downtown, and if to do a full build out, full reconstruction of the fort requires closing of streets, and then you know what happens, you got other layers of history that came along afterwards uh. First, first uh, there were some Mexican adobes that were built in and around the area, and uh, then later on in the 19th century, Chinatown appeared, but it was actually outside the Presidio area over on Canberto Street towards uh, State Street, but after the 25 earthquake, that Chinatown, what was left, was moved into the Presidio area, and there was a building built called the Whitaker Building that housed Japanese residents and shops and so forth. And then around 1900, uh, the Japanese moved into the area, mm. and there was a, a church, a Buddhist, they called it a church, not a temple, a Buddhist church was built uh, right where the where the Presidio Chapel had been, and that was there until... You know, the 20th century around the 1960s, and was eventually demolished. So it got a little bit controversial. It was it wasn't very controversial until I arrived. I don't think I I caused the controversy. It was looming, so to speak, because uh, you know nothing had really happened. They finally started, in terms of what you could see, they had started to rebuild a, a section called the Padres Quarters, uh, and so. You know, you could say, well, nobody really kind of knew about what the the big plans were. But then when the trust started to buy some other property and people started to see what was going to happen, it got quite controversial. So from around 81 to 90, I spent a lot of time at City Hall, State Park Commission meetings, et cetera, and finally came to the conclusion uh, it was approved by both the city and the state and the trust to build about two-thirds of the presidio leaving the streets open and when i left about a little more than a third of the presidio has been rebuilt Mm. so there's a whole section still of the front front gate area where the corrals are and the soldiers quarters are that really should be rebuilt because it's there's a jail there, et cetera, front gate, and then there's a bastion that could be rebuilt. Those would all be very important for interpreting the history of that particular site. But it takes a while. You know, these projects, you start out, and how do you do a reconstruction Well, you don't you know, just say, okay, let's get an architect. You have to do a couple of things. You have to go through all your documents, what's available, and what is available at the Presidio for the Santa Barbara Presidio doesn't exist, as far as I've ever found out, anywhere else. Two detailed ground plans, uh, one of them by Goy Kaché and another one by the Governor Foggis. And uh, I I don't think Foggis actually drew the map. I think somebody else did the updated map for Foggis, but he put his name on it. And uh, those maps are absolutely detailed. I mean, they tell you the size of each room, whether they have dirt floors, tile floors, open beam ceilings, et cetera. And, and when you go around trying to find other plans like that, they just don't exist. Uh, and I've had people dispute that, given talks here, there, and everywhere, even in Mexico, and saying, find a more detailed plan, and nobody has. So we had that great advantage. Mm-hmm. It was like, almost like having a set of blueprints. To be able to rebuild, and then the second thing, you know, you have to do your documents, and that, and not all questions are always answered. But even by that type of plan, uh, you have to go out and do archaeology. And the nice thing about the archaeology was it confirmed that that plan that we had was pretty accurate. It said there going, there's going to be these foundations here, and that's where they were. And then when we finally located, knew exactly where the chapel was. Went out was exactly. You know, the, the same length that it said in the plans that uh, Fodges and Groycuchet had prepared. And these plans, by the way, one of them's at the at famous library in Chicago, I'm blanking on the name. Newberry? Yes, at the Newberry. And of course, we have copies, to Trust as copies of that. So, so you put that together, then you get an architect, and it's still, there's a lot of questions that aren't answered. And then you bring an architect. I remember a couple of times uh, we said, well, we, we had a committee that had, you know, engineers and historians on it to, to decide what was, you know, what we're going to do for a particular section, how we're going to design it, and so forth. And we hand it over to an architect and an engineer, and they go, well, that that looks good, but it'll fall down as soon as you put it up. You know, structurally, it wasn't quite right the way we presented it. So the architect has to kind of figure those things out. So, so. Uh, then you get there, and when I arrived, they had a first draft of, a, of the plans for the chapel. And uh, it was done by Gil Garcia, I do his name right oh, Gil Sanchez. Gil's still around doing some, he's retired now, but he's still doing some mission period uh, restoration projects. And then Norman Neuerberg, the famous Neuer, Neuerberg, appeared on the scene. And for those of us who are, are into this period of history, you know who he is. He a, was a very well-known uh, art historian. And uh, at the highest award that the Mission Studies, or now the California Missions Foundation gives out, the Neuerberg Award honors his, his memory. Well, he came along and helped with some questions on the inside of the chapel like uh, the floor did it slope or was it leveled out and so forth because the floor that we came across had a slope to it and he came back and showed us that at least a half a dozen of the floors in the in the chapels the missions had slopes that sloped away from the, from the uh, altar so you know there's those kind of things you do until you finally come up with the plans Then you got to go out and you got to find somebody who can do the project for you, and also uh, raise the money. That's another key factor. So all these things take time. Uh, You know, first of all, when you do the archaeology, that's not going to just happen in you know a couple of weeks. You, You get out there and you have to teaspoon it down to the foundations. And then uh, when you've completed with that, you uh, uh, take the report and, and start to design the building. And that, that those reports take months to, to do. So you can see each project that I was involved with one, two, three, four, five separate reconstruction projects, picking up the ladder. And each one of those took several years to do. You know, the chapel itself, we started... Uh, they started in the late 70s to design it. Then we started to actually build it around 1982, uh, make, making adobe bricks and everything. So uh, I hope I'm not going on too much here, but you can just see the complexity of doing it. And then what, what I got out of all this was they did this on a frontier. Mm-hmm. You know, they did this. Uh, they, they didn't have the same labor force. They didn't have tr- trucks and tractors and backhoes and so forth. They were out there putting this thing together without all the uh, equipment that we have today. Although I have to say this, that when you build an adobe, you, you know you have to make an adobe brick, right? And you still have to do it the same old way. You pour it into a form and it, you, take, you four, try to make something that does four bricks and you pull it off and you got to make 30,000 bricks for that chapel weighing 50, 50 pounds each. And those bricks have to be moved about three ta- times. I think overall, I determined that it, it there were what, what 33 to four million pounds of adobe bricks that were wow. made, picked up, and moved around when the whole Presidio was was built. So, anyway, you can see it, uh, the complexity of, of doing something like this and then being accurate. Uh, we we. Uh, we found the foundations and we made sure that the chapel was the actual length of the foundations. And uh we knew the height of the building because the plans uh that we had from Gorkachea and if he was the commandant of the Presidio during the construction of it, and Fajas told us the height of the building and, and uh so forth. But then there were always some things that, that didn't appear on the plans like the bell tower, right? Mm-hmm. And uh we found foundations for the bell tower, and there was mentioning uh, mention of the bell tower, but we didn't build it with the bell tower at first. Then, eventually, we went back years after we had rebuilt the chapel and put a bell tower on it. After, you know, lots and lots of research, we never ever found an image of the bell tower itself. There are very, I'm sure if you're familiar with the Cordero drawings of the of the. Uh, Presidio of Monterey that's just so yes. you know, they're wonderful drawings they did even to the point where showing the women hanging up their laundry mm-hmm. outside the Presidio in Monterey we didn't have anything like that. we had Vancouver came by with a man called Sykes on board and drew a couple of plans from from uh, the ship at sea so we didn't ever have anything showing a bell tower we had to do a lot of research and I feel like what we put there is pretty accurate.
0: So tell me a little bit about the Presidio Santa Barbara. It was founded, if I remember correctly, it was 1782, right? Correct. So, um, what was? How many soldiers were stationed there? What was what was the the? Or say at its at a normal period, at its height. Let's say, and and what was the function? of the Presidio as military fort. What were they, what were they doing? And, and like I said, how many, how many soldiers were stationed oh, at the Presidio?
1: Well, that's, you know, you, you think in terms of hundreds, but there really were not hundreds. First of all, when Sarah came up uh, uh, with Portola, they were mostly single soldiers. That turned out to be a problem, as you know, because the soldiers got involved with Indian women and Sarah went down to Mexico and said, please send up soldiers with their families, which happened after that. And as after, uh, let's see, we have Monterey, and then you have San San Diego Monterey, uh, then you have San Francisco, and the Santa Barbara Presidio was the last one. So there was a strong uh, tendency now to send people up with their families. So there never were a lot. There were, let's just round off to say around 50 to 60 soldiers came mm-hmm. up, maybe getting up to 100, but hardly, there was never that many soldiers living at the Presidio at one time because, the, as you know, the, the soldiers were sent to help guard protect the missions. So Santa Barbara was a military district, and that military district included the Pueblo de Los Angeles, it didn't include San Gabriel, but it did include Ventura, Santa Barbara, Mission La Purisima, and San Inez, and San Fernando. Hmm. And soldiers were were at every one of those. So you take sometimes there there were more in some places than others, and I don't recollect right off the top how many were at each one. But but about two to five, something like that. So so if each one of those those Missions had soldiers, and he realized there weren't many left inside the Presidio itself. Mm, okay, and, so, uh, so so and, so, so like, the Presidio
0: soldiers were not a distinct group from the mission soldiers. I mean, they were they were all from the same um, unit, let's say.
1: Yes, exactly, and and uh, so uh, and and the commandant the commandant of the Presidio was very very important because he was. The chief military officer, the chief administrative officer, the chief legal officer. Whenever there was a, a crime that was committed, and there were there were small crimes, for example, uh, civil matters where two, two residents of the Pueblo de Los Angeles were fighting over sheep, and his, one said these are my sheep, and the other ones my sheep. So he came down and had to have a court case and decided who whose sheep they were. That was a minor thing that he did but then there were capital crimes and there were during the Spanish period there were uh, two executions of people that committed capital crimes Uh, murder and uh, some uh, heinous sexual act was committed that led to the execution of a soldier and then another soldier was executed for killing another uh, soldier not an Indian Hmm. and uh, there were no Indians uh, who were ever who were put on trial and executed although there were indians who were put on trial and put in jail for for capital crimes kind of interesting how they did that they would have a trial and they were there's usually a commandant and an officer and, and, and maybe another officer at a trial and there would be one, one officer who would present, that uh, would be defending the person on trial, the other one who would be prosecuting, and then the commandant would sit there and passing judgment on it. And that was kind of interesting. They didn't have, the sort of similar to our system. And then the, the court cases are some of the most interesting history of the, of the time period because you get more details, sometimes physical descriptions of people that you don't normally get. But uh, the trials were interesting. I think they go on for 50, 60 pages of testimony, and some of the richest history of, of early California is to be found in those, those trials. So so to you, I'm going on here, but the, the presidios were very, very important in, in each district, from San Diego and its missions and its uh, legal st- batters to deal with, Santa Barbara same thing, Monterey same thing San Francisco and they all reported to to uh, the Viceroy in, in uh, Mexico City
0: So what would you say, what, when you started at the Presidio in the 60s how much did you know about Spanish Presidios and what would you say were some of the most interesting things you discovered along the way?
1: Well let me just say that what When I was living in Europe, after I I was working on my dissertation, and uh, first of all, to answer the question, I didn't know anything about Presidius. Mm -hmm. But I did know something about Roman forts, and that was because I was teaching for the University of Maryland. The university had a European division over there that taught the one million soldiers and families, and I was hired to teach both European and American history and I found out that well, you're in Europe. You've got lots of European history right around you. And we were living near Frankfurt in a city called Darmstadt. And just to the north of us, there was a Roman fort that had been reconstructed mm. uh, by uh, the Germans at the in First World War. And it's in a rectangular shape, and it's called a presidium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I go, hmm. So when I got so when I, and I would take my students to that. And by the way, that that one near Bad Homburg today, blanking liking on the name of it right now, has been declared, a, inscribed as a World Heritage Site. And uh, so it's, it's even though it's a complete reconstruction, the fact that it captured that period of history in a way that had never been you know, done in Germany before, the, the Roman history of, and the wall, you know, they built limes that, uh, in the same way that Hadrian had a wall built in, in England. So, I had that background, and I came to to uh, uh, Washington and then on the, to Santa Barbara, and I really didn't have any background, but I sort of scratched my head, so here, here I'm going from this Roman fort to this Presidio in in uh, Santa Barbara, and I spent the next 35 years inside that fort. So I saw – I'm always sort of trying to connect – things to europe because they spent so much time there and uh, these roman forts really are related they were they were built on a frontier in the same way that the spanish war obviously uh it was a different time period but they did speak romance languages from latin they did uh, call these things presidios etc so i immediately kind of like that idea and uh I guess your question was, what what did I find important about them? Well, what I found important about them was that they were not well-known and not considered that important. And it seemed to me that because the early Californians who came here as colonists usually started out not in the Pueblos. There were two of them. There were some of our early California people in San Jose and also in Los Angeles and a little bit in Santa Cruz but most of the soldiers were in the forts and, and the names that you hear, Sanchez, Carrillo, Ortega, et cetera. These, there's, there's lots of those people around who are descendants today of, of these soldiers. And so they're the first colonists and, and people are, appreciate that. And I kind of promoted them. and I think the Santa Barbara Presidio has done a good job of, of helping people with gene, genealogical research and, Helped uh, give their identity back that they're they're kind of like you know we talk about the East Coast and and uh, the first colonists there well they, we we have them here in California so I thought that was really important and I have started a group now that I'm retired uh, it's, it's the Presidio Alliance and these Presidios weren't just in California there was a Presidio in Tucson Presidio mm-hmm. south of Tucson Presidios in New Mexico Presidios in uh, Texas, even up the Mississippi River, they were called Presidios. And the forts, of course, are in Florida, a different world, a different uh, viceroy. But, but, but still, uh, there's a military history that's connected. So I think they're really quite important.
0: Right, <laughs> right. So what's the uh, Presidio Alliance doing? What are you, what's your goal?
1: Uh, well, it's it's still nascent. I, I uh, would like to do a Presidio symposium. And uh, I started to do it, but we kind of got crushed, didn't we, by this situation. I'd hope to do something in 2020, uh, the fall of 2020, but it's not going to happen, obviously. And I'd like to bring together all these people. I'd like to – there are some people who do know a lot about Presidio history, like Dr. Jack Williams, who is is not in California these days, but but there's all pe- other people like, uh, uh, Sanchez uh, Joseph Sanchez, who's with the retired from the National Park Service, who who uh, has got a lot of knowledge about procedures and bringing together. Didn't you, you just people.
0: write a book on uh, El Camino Real?
1: Yeah, you know what? Guess what? I have it sitting right here on my my desk. I'm <laughs> me too. <on> page <laughs> sixty. <laughs> yeah, and uh, okay. uh, Julian. A friend of mine just wrote a review of it, Carver Hall.
0: Oh, yeah. I know Julianne.
1: You know Julian. She just wrote a review that's going to be coming out on the book, and it wasn't so expensive. I suggest people go out and buy it, but it's uh, quite a bit of money. It was $60 I shelled out. Yeah. But I, I don't know if you noticed in the beginning of that book that uh, he uh, says that what inspired him to do this was he was a keynote speaker at our symposium in Santa Barbara, but I convened with Julianne on on the idea of making El Camino Real to California a uh, possible World Heritage Site. And he took that and said, well, the first steps will be to go through this to see where the original Camino Real was. And That's kind of what, and I'm on about page 60 now, just arriving in Santa Barbara as I read this. So, <laughs> you know, so the idea is that, uh, you know, Presidios have always been in the shadow of the missions especially in California oh yeah they were there there were these soldiers right who did all these things and bad things oftentimes uh, that we hear about but uh, there's another side to the Presidios in some ways if they're, in their time they were equal and, and, and depending on how you look at it maybe even more important than the mission in the colonization process so I thought it was just sort of I'd like to just do it on, on the Got a phone ringing
0: here, but uh, no worries. Hold on a second. Where was I? Um, Oh, you were talking about uh, Santa Barbara and the. um, Yeah, the uh,
1: symposium that that we did then and, and how this. Camino Real project. Now, when I left the trust, I felt like that was not something. It was too big for me to take it on alone. I passed it on to the California Missions Foundation, But that's kind of. I don't know. Nothing's really happened on it lately, but I still think that project's important. And uh, the way he was looking at it, it, he sort of divides in this book, El Camino Real. He, he does divide it up into the four military districts, and Julianne has done some research. And we, we, we decided that the best way to kind of approach a detailed study of, of early California with this Camino Real in mind was to do the four military districts and, and have people do research in those areas and then do comparative studies of what happened in those four military districts. And I, uh, I did, uh, I, before I left the trust, I spent about a month putting together a timeline and I think a timeline for each four, you know, each military district would be really interesting. Uh, sometimes they intersect or not. The events are you know happening throughout the entire Alta California. But I thought that was kind of a good way to do the research. And there's so much that you could do. And there's so many, so many documents that haven't been looked at in terms of California history that would be really good to do. So uh, obviously... I believe in this Presidio history and that's where I kind of did this Presidio uh, Alliance because I felt, you know, I was the one that was the most enthusiastic about keeping it going after I retired. Right.
0: What would you say was particularly unique about Santa Barbara as a Presidio and a location for, um, you know, Spanish military presence?
1: Well, that's that's a good, really good question because it was different. One, uh, we have the Enlightenment period in in Spain. Charles Charles the is considered an enlightened despot, and and the uh, civil side of uh, of government is asserting itself. Father Sarah f- feels pushed back from Governor Neve, and this whole idea of of, of the Enlightenment coming. California is a subject that a friend of mine and I thought we would write up that cause, because the Presidio represented of Santa Barbara represented this enlightenment idea. So it's the only Presidio where there was no mission founded simultaneously. So if you take San Diego you had the Presidio and the mission. You take Monterey, you had a Presidio and a mission. They were together, then they separated. Then you San Francisco, there was a Presidio and a mission. Santa Barbara founded without a mission from 1782. There was one 30 miles down the road, 25 miles to be exact, down the road in Ventura, mm-hmm. but the big population in Santa Barbara did not have a mission and, and Padres would come up. So so what they did, Goykachea carried carried forth what Neve had negotiated with the chieftain Yannanali Ali was to try to convert the Indians in their villages. And for four years, it didn't happen anywhere else in California. Goykachea was was uh, working with the local Indians, and priests were coming up. And then after 86, when the mission was finally sound, founded, there was still this desire to keep the Indians in their villages and not make them come to the missions. Now, that didn't entirely happen, and the Padres were absolutely opposed to that. And after Goykachea leaves, then... Uh, the, the Indians are, are brought to the missions, and by Gregocheas in Santa Barbara from 1784 to 1802. By 1805, 1806, the villages, even on the islands out here, are pretty much empty, and uh, the missions are now really where all the Indians are living. So there was that unique experience, and uh, you know Marie Duggan, who was you interviewed, she did a a study for me to show some of the unique relationships that had developed between the soldiers and the Indians. And there was a kind of competition going on between the soldiers and and the mission for Indian labor. So, so that's, that's one of the unique characteristics. And of course the Chumash were very advanced people in many ways. And, you know, you have to always be cautious when you talk about those kind of things, but uh, you know, they, they, they had, had a, a system of exchange of goods they, from the islands. They would their, their boats would go out back and forth, and they are different. Uh, and, and it's not a uniform thing. There's not every Chumash village was the same. Uh, there was linguistic differences, and but overall cultural similarities that define them as Chumash. So uh, that there was just this encounter, a unique encounter between the Indians and uh, the soldiers, and uh, not always violent. Uh, there was incidents of violence uh, in, in, in these encounters, as there always would be. And I found that uh, there, there was even some marriages between Indians and soldiers, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And then one, one of the things I consider, one of the major events that helps us think about this time period was around 1788. Uh, the, the Presidio Chapel had been had been rebuilt, and Yananali, the chieftain's son, had died, and he was about five years old. And he had this chieftain Yananali had a relationship with Coyotechea, and that son was buried in the Presidio Chapel. It's the only Indian buried in the Presidio Chapel. And as you know, most Indians were put in mass graves. We don't even know exactly where Yananali was buried. Uh, but in a mass grave when he went to the mission later. So this this, this must have been quite something when the, this young boy had died, how it died, I don't know, uh, that marched up in a dirge that came from his village and they actually buried him and had a ceremony in the site and gave him a, a Christian name and so forth. So that to me is sort of symbolic of a relationship that needs to be thought about and studied more as time goes by.
0: Yeah, I think that the, the thing that's, that escapes us so often, especially here in California, because of the way that the history has been written, studied, taught, are these relationships which are between various people, military, uh, Indians, clergy, and so on and so forth. It's, they're so much more complex and layered than, than we give them credit for. And when you get little stories like that, that that it's sort of the tip of the iceberg, that it tells you something about a relationship that was there that that you wouldn't have known otherwise. I, to me, those are the type of things that that really help us understand that that every you know all of history is a story of of human beings and their the web of relationships that they create. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> Yes, you know, I did an adult ed course where I took that story that I just told you and I uh, the course was held at the Presidio and I, I uh, walked, there were about 25 students, I walked them to the front gate and I said, okay, now let's think about this, When we talked about that this, this young boy was brought and, he was, and we walked up the street, across the street and into the chapel and then that really fired people's imagination to think about that moment in time, that 1788, that actually happened on that location. So, you know, I, I couldn't agree with your point more. That was what I think. There's there's stories like that. There's stories about cochea and he's the one person, by the way, that I singled out and did most of my research. I didn't. I I didn't uh, have a big Spanish background, as we've already discussed. German was my thing. I still do. Still working on German projects, by the way. Mm. By solving. I'm to put together with thirty thousand books on German history, but oh, wow. I did I did learn uh, you know I studied Spanish in high school took a couple of took a couple of semesters in college and uh, just started doing research going to the Bancroft. I went to I went down to Mexico to Guadalajara because there were some things there I wanted to look at. I went to Gorky's uh, birthplace in Kosala, which is near Mazatlan looking for some records, uh, went to, uh, to, back to the Bancroft, went to New Mexico State University, uh, and there they have a great collection. I found tremendous amount of material on, on Goy Cachea's family and how, how important it was, his Basque and so forth. And I had a grant from the Spanish government I could read enough Spanish, speak enough Spanish, that I went to various archives, including this archivo, uh, de las Indias in in Seville and the mm-hmm. military archive in in uh, Madrid and one in Segovia and, and scooped up all this information on Goycage and I haven't done a full manuscript but have published three articles on his life and he's a unique character that's for sure. Uh, what uh, makes him unique? Uh, uh, well, one is Basque heritage. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you know, there's a Though There are a lot of Basque um, or ha- there are a lot of Basque uh, ethnically Basque uh, officers and uh, soldiers in in California and in right. Mexico. And we
1: are, you often hear about the Ca- Catalans, but also the Padres, where Lasuen was a Basque. Mm. So you, and you just go down the list. Uh, Sarah was was Catalan, right? Uh, but Mallorcan. but spoke Catalan. My okay. Mar- Mar- version. Uh, so so yeah, that that's the other thing. These these. There's this ethnicity in, in California that's quite interesting, and I talked Anza to about, was
0: Basque, right? Who's that? Anza.
1: Absolutely, yeah. In fact, we went to the place where Anza was born, and uh, his father his father was Anza was born in the New World in the, in a little Presidio, I'm blanking on the name. It's on a hill just south of the Mexican border uh, in below Arizona. And uh, yeah, there are lots. there are tremendous amount of Basque, and there's a, a you know, a Basque studies program at University of Nevada, mm-hmm. and uh, they they do a lot of the history. They had a Basque studies program here at UCSB, but more literary oriented than the history of, of the New World. But that that's something that his background and I, I one thing I've never found out is where his father was was born. I'm convinced it was. Not in the in in uh, Mexico or, or uh, Nuevas España. I, I think he was born in in uh, Spain somewhere in Basque country, mm-hmm. and I haven't had the time to follow up on it. But his mother's got a heritage, Aragon that goes back like two hundred fifty years, believe it or not, in uh, two hundred years in uh, Mexico. And so he came from a very prominent family. I think his his father came over it was one of one of those peninsulars that came and married into a a family. Mm Because that was status, as you know, to marry somebody who was of Spanish origin. So that, I mean, I've traced that history. And then we haven't got time. I could give you a whole session on him sometime of who he was, where he came from, why he was selected to do this, how he ended up his career as the uh, governor of of, uh, Baja, California, where he died in Loreto in eighteen fourteen and so forth. So I think that's that you know, there aren't aren't a lot of biographies on these comandantes, but there's some very interesting ones and and uh, that would be somebody said I published an article on it or actually yeah, local local article here on him I and somebody said this was a good example of what more research and histories biographies that should be done. And I hope that that, that does happen.
0: Well, I hope that's a it's an opening to have another conversation, because I know at least one person has written to me saying, please uh, interview Jerry Jackman about Goikuchea. So we'll right. have to do
1: that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd be happy to trace that. It'd be very interesting, because he has uh, spent 18 years here, which really is amazing how people fade away in history. But, you know, everybody in Santa Mar knows who's De La Guerra is, right? De La Guerra people. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows who Ortega is because there's an Ortega Street. Most people know Correo, who was a comandante here, because there's a Correo Street. I, there's no Goicochea Street, and hardly anybody knows who he is. And I'd say after De La Guerra, he was probably the most important person in defining the, the, what Santa Barbara was. You know, his influence as one person who was in charge of building the Presidio and then being the commandant for eighteen years,
0: there are a number of governors that um, that we should know more about. One of the ones that I'm interested in learning more about is Arriaga, uh, another Basque.
1: Another Basque, uh, right? So, right. so uh, yeah, Barica was was Basque too.
0: Look at that! <laughs> Look at that! Um, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, one of the one of the things I. And dying to ask you about is I know that you were made a Knight of the Order of Isabella Católica from Spain. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what what that honor is and, um,
1: and why? Uh, yeah. Well, that was a real surprise, the uh, Spanish consul. Well, first of all, the consul in L.A. likes the, the Santa Barbara Presidio, and the staff down there says... You want to? Where's the best site where you can learn about Spanish history? That's not a mission, and it's at the Presidio of Santa Barbara. And then this uh, this consul general arrived, and he heard about me being involved, and so I I received this award, uh, knighting me. It given out really for scholarship, primarily, or but people who who interpret. Spanish history in, in uh, California. David Bolton recently was named for was the executive director of, of, uh, of the California Missions Foundation. There's uh, uh, Iris Engstrand has received it, uh, the same award. She's a well-known historian from the University of San Diego, writing mostly about borderlands history and so forth. So that's kind of how it happened. And uh, I proudly, I very proudly received it. I really, truthfully, it's for the Santa barbara trust and all the efforts there are, there are a lot of people like you know that contributed to getting this project there was a engineer who retired he just devoted his whole life to research and by the time i arrived there was a wave here and i think of all the qualities i have I was pretty good at fundraising because i believed in this project and and so I received that award. But, you know, something equal to me was being named the Honorary State Park Ranger of the Year by the California State Parks Ranger Association. And uh, that's an award given out for somebody who promotes the ideas of, of state parks and schools and so forth. And, you know, El Presidio is a state park. And mm-hmm. besides being involved with Santa Barbara, I became involved statewide and California League of Park Associations. We visited all 280 state parks and, and promoted the state parks and helped this organization uh, become more influential in, in uh, helping other state parks. So, uh, in that award, by the way, I share with Walt Disney and Clint Eastwood. How's that? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that. Good company. Yeah, Pearl Chase. By the way, she was the other one of Santa Barbara. She, she's wow. Miss Santa Barbara, who founded the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation. So, anyway, it's a nice award, but it's it's you know how it is with those things. Other people contribute to them, and you get the glory. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think
0: you've you've deserved uh, the glory you've gotten, and it was. Uh, it was a very interesting conversation but like I said uh, I think you've you've opened yourself up to, to having another one. Um, I really do want to thank you and I'm I'm in I've got my name involved in the Presidio Alliance so I'm looking forward to, to doing more work with it as as our new situation permits and um, yeah so I really want to want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. All
1: right. All right. I want to thank you for having me on. I'm happy to come and talk about orcachea sometime. And I really do appreciate what you're doing with your project. And you're kind of keeping it alive. You're not the only one, but you're one of the major forces in helping us come to a balanced view of this period of history and how how interesting it is at the same time.
0: Well, that's my goal. And I appreciate that. Man, it gives talk. me gives me uh, impetus to keep going. So thank great. you very much.
1: Thanks, Daniel.
0: I really want to thank Dr. Jerry Jackman for joining me on the podcast. You know, the Presidio was such an important institution on the frontier, and we we still generally don't know enough about it. That's why we need experts like him to help us understand better this, this really central but oftentimes poorly understood aspect of the very complex history of of early California and the southwest in general under Spanish rule. I really hope that you will uh, go check out the information about the Presidio Alliance which you can find on the page at californiafrontier.net dedicated to this podcast episode. I've put the link there. And I was also impressed at how much work goes into preserving our history. And in the case of the Presidio of Santa Barbara, the massive amount of work that went into rebuilding it from the ground up, and I know that it continues to be a place where important archaeological work is done that we all benefit from. So I hope that when you can, that uh, you go to Santa Barbara and visit the Presidio of Santa Barbara. I'm mean, You're really going to enjoy it. So that ends season two of our podcast. I've already started working on season three, and we're going to have some more fascinating stories from the frontier, some snippets of history, of things that perhaps aren't so well known, and, of course, some great interviews with experts who really can peel back the onion, so to speak, on this fascinating place that is California. So if you want to stay abreast of what's going on, please continue to visit the website. If you want to know when the new season is ready to start, uh, sign up for our mailing list at www.californiafrontier.net. And please be sure and let your friends know about this podcast. That way we'll be able to get the word out and to really help spread education about the history of this wonderful place, which is California. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the California Frontier Podcast. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the California Frontier Project website. At www.californiafrontier.net. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion, make sure and drop me a line at Damien at californiafrontier.net.